and welcome to African Jeopardy. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Creole in Scotland. Today we will be discussing imagining the worlds that could be planting the seeds of the colonial futures with an amazing guest. Asif Bobulia is a researcher from Johannesburg, South Africa who is currently studying towards the Master's in Education Policy Studies through Stellenbosch University. He holds a Bachelor of Education from Wits University in South Africa, as well as a Bachelor's Honours in the Study of Islam from the University of Johannesburg. He is passionate about exploring the intersections between decoloniality, education, Liberation, Theology, and Future Studies. His master's research would be exploring the role of Muslim futurist pedagogies in the co-creation of the colonial futures. He serves as a co-director of the Women of WAIF Futurist Collective, which aims to hold space in critical, creative, and collaborative conversations around the futures to which we are striving. Of striving. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Asif, and welcome to African Jeopardy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor and pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to start by asking you, what exactly does it mean to have the colonial futures? Or can you tell us a bit more about the meaning of the colonial futures? Sure. Uh, well, I'll try my best. <laughs> I think that we can all agree that um, all of us are entangled in really intricate ways in the matrix of coloniality. So the power structures, the knowledge systems, the intersubjective uh, relationships that have emerged as a consequence of this, I think this shared experience of colonialism uh, that has been witnessed around the world. And in many ways, every day, we bear witness to the ongoing harm that these systems have caused and continue to cause in terms of our ways of being, in our relationships, in, um, yeah, I think just our ability to know who we are yeah. on a deeper level. Um, given the, the really deep psychosocial uh, and, and structural harm that colonialism has caused. And some time ago, I began to wonder as to what might futures look like mm -hmm. if we had to imagine futures in which we are not only free of these systems, but are able to live in, in deep relationship with one another. Uh, in deep relationship with the land, in deep relationship with those uh, aspects of our being from which we've been deeply disconnected uh -huh. as a consequence of this colonial experience. Yeah. And so then the idea of decolonial futures then emerges as at least um, a conceptual guiding point, right? To say that yeah. I don't know exactly what those futures will look like, I can't say for certainty, but I know that, you know, we're talking about futures in which we are free of the 
not just the, the, the power structures of white supremacy, but the logics of white supremacy, futures in which we may be free of the, the, the kind of patriarchal arm and violence that we witness on a daily basis, especially in a country like South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, futures that, uh, that enable us to have not just, um, a mutually beneficial relationship with the land, but relationships that actually view the land as a source of knowledge, uh, in viewing the land as, um, as having its own kind of spiritual ontological value mm-hmm. that is in line with indigenous frameworks and paradigms, um, that have been marginalized and, and, uh, subject to really violent epistemicide. And so I think that is the, the, the general overview, at least a general idea of what we mean when we talk about decolonial futures. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also there's an element of saying that what are the futures to which we are aiming and what can we start doing from now okay. uh, in order to, at the very least, begin laying the foundations of planting the seeds for those futures uh, so that even if we don't see the fruit of those seeds in our lifetime, yeah. um, we can, at the very least, begin to create and build spaces for future generations to continue that work so that even if in the next six or seven generations time, it may even be that much more possible to see the realization of these decolonial futures. Um, so I think that that's the general idea around what this means. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for sharing that. At least listening to you sort of made me think about so many things, but at the same time, it also made me want to ask you more questions, which although you've tried to address, so for instance, when you said what uh, what we can start doing from now to plant the seed is obviously mm-hmm. something that invites me to then ask you the next question, which is how do we plant the seeds? Because I, 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 I agree, you did note that you don't necessarily know what the future would look like because, well, we have been robbed of the tools to be able to provide or, or sort of produce that future thanks to colonialism. But I wonder if you can tell us how we can plant, plant those seeds and whether such seed plant, planting is already ongoing or happening in different spheres. Sure, that's quite a... Uh, there's a lot to unpack in the question itself. Yeah. Um, and if I'm being completely honest, I think that this is why I'm doing the research that I'm doing is to maybe come closer to answering that question of how do we go about planting the seeds? Okay. Um, because I think that on some level, um, the first step is in really coming to terms with and grappling with the extent to which all of us on a deeply personal level, uh, have been affected by and continue to be affected by the system of coloniality. Uh-huh. I think it's that first step of recognition uh, before we can like really get into the actual the question of, okay, what are the seeds that we're planting and how do we go about planting them? I think that there's a journey that all of us may need to take if we haven't already done so uh-huh. uh, in community with people around us and in, 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 with patience and, and with a degree of, um, yeah, I think it was with the intention of deepening in our knowledge and awareness of in what ways and to what extent do I in my own life live and breathe coloniality every day. Uh-huh. Uh, 
and in what ways is that has this kind of shaped my my knowledge of self my self image my race my racialized relationships my gendered relationships um how am i living it and and how is it continuing to to have some kind of impact on my life and um yeah in terms of my positionalities you know the spaces that i have been afforded the opportunity to occupy the power that i wield within those spaces um i think so on one hand like if even if i haven't necessarily gotten to that stage yet of like okay how do we go about planting the seeds uh-huh. i think that there's a deep level of introspection that's needed in order to come to terms with um yeah just like our implication in the the in those ongoing systems um and on the, on the on that basis it's like once we've gone through that journey for ourselves it then becomes easier to facilitate that for those within our spheres of influence and i think when once the system once the collective begins to at least share in that idea or have an, a deeper awareness of that it's the collective that then generates this generates the seeds right and and begins yeah. to imagine like Okay so within our own context and communities um what are the 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 seeds that we need to be planting um because it's going to vary i think from culture to culture context to context yeah. given the the particularities around how colonialism is experienced in in our own uh yeah in our own communities um and i think it's on it, it that process is then one that rather than me prescribing like okay this is how you go about planting the seeds yeah um i would much rather that that is it's a co-creative process right that's why we speak about the co-creation of decolonial futures mm-hmm. in that okay like as a collective like how do we go about making those decisions and thinking about what seeds we want to plant yeah um thank you so much again i mean your reflection or your response to the question shows that at least you are still in the process of you know finding out what exactly this decolonial future would mean but also you re- do recognize that it might have to mean different things for different people but then your response also made me think about i guess i could say the steps or the seed that at least some people in this part of the world so i i live and work in scotland and there's been this recognition at least in the higher education sector of the need to decolonize the curriculum and i guess you could say that this idea of decolonizing the curriculum is a step towards planting this seed of the colonial future and so for them it could be that okay this is a way to do it and this is a process that we could sort of do um go through to be able to get there and one comment that you made i think you talked about um community no knowledge co-creation actually emphasizes this whole process of steps that might be needed to be able to decolonize and then work towards the colonial future but then that also invites me to perhaps ask you the next question because for me whilst i recognize that decolonizing the curriculum have become a thing I wonder if it's also a thing that is ongoing on the African continent or primarily in South Africa and how you are engaging with this idea is it mm. working or is this another example of hot air you know something that people have popularized and ne- and it has not necessarily led to anything significant in terms of the differences or the changes 
So I think it's important to maybe put things in a bit of a, at least a, a recent historical context in, in South Africa. Uh -huh. um, as you may know, in 2015 and 2016, we witnessed, um, you know, the, the roads must fall and fears must fall protests, which swept across universities across the country. Um, and I think that in many ways, some, one of the, the most significant outcomes of those protests was that it propelled this language of decolonization into popular discourse. Right. So not only was there a push to call for free decolonized education in South African universities, but I think for myself, like this was the first time that I was ever exposed to this word, right? Like, what does it mean to decolonize? And it was through the student protests and struggles. And in, I think in the subsequent years, I, I will say that I think, you know, universities uh, have at the very least, <laughs> even if it's lip service, it's like, lip service about decolonization uh -huh. you know they they have spoken about this idea of decolonizing and and it has kind of featured somewhat in in our uh, courses i mean i started university in the immediate aftermath of of the the fallist protests uh -huh. and so i don't think that university especially was in a position to ignore or i think it is still very much in the the kind of memory um, yeah. to, the, to the point that they have to talk about it right and, and i think that's what, again like one of the effects of the protests is that it placed decolonization kind of firmly sorry it placed decolonization kind of firmly on the agenda uh. at least at least at the level of including some kind of reference to it in in our curriculum that being said, I think that we also have to be very honest with ourselves about the very significant and severe limitations of trying to operationalize decolonization in the context of universities. I think that we, when we come to terms with and reckon with the really significant role that these institutions have played in entrenching the very systems that we're now trying to decolonize. Yeah. Um, we recognize that, and not just in on at the level of you know the the universities, but I think that the epistemologies and the knowledge systems upon which the universities are based. Um, I mean, it's it's very much premised on the marginalization of epistemologies that could potentially disrupt and alter and challenge the knowledge that is produced within the within the university setting, right? Uh -huh. And so I think the, the, the main point is that we recognize that there are severe and very significant limitations to the extent to which we can actually decolonize within the university. That being said, I do think that there's definitely a place for it and there's a need to be pushing and making those those changes and, and really trying to push uh, in terms of what kind of knowledge is being produced in those spaces. But I'm personally, uh, you know, I, I, I was going through this question about like how invested am I mm -hmm. in the idea of the university yeah. and to what extent am I willing uh, to engage in, you know, knowledge building processes and in, in dialogue with people in my own community where I feel I could have maybe a more, uh, meaningful impact, uh, and, and where I in turn could learn as well, right? I don't think, I think that this is part of the trapping, right? Yeah. Is that our, our understanding is that learning only ever takes place in the context of the school and the university. Uh, and by extension, the only real meaningful teaching you can do is in those spaces. Um, 
But I think that, again, this is part of the, the process of like, you know, in, in our futures, where do we see universities featuring in these futures, for example? And, and should we be maybe moving towards alternative ways of thinking about what higher education means and uh, and moving away from these like deeply extractive research relationships and um, and and modes of knowledge production so I think that there's there's many layers to that and and I, I think that's a very long way of answering your question no but that is actually a very powerful way of uh, answering the question because it sort of also then brings us to think about so many other things, especially in relation to research and also practical things that are happening. So let's take, for instance, climate change. It's very much upon us. And in in the earlier conversation, you talked about the land and our relationship with the land. You know, you're looking at this uh, local ecological way of knowing, or should I say indigenous way of knowing. And then this brings me to the fact that when we talk about climate change, for instance, we, where on the African continent, unfortunately, the impact is is not actually futuristic. It's actually very much upon us. People are seeing their lands eroded. People are not producing as much food. We're seeing drought. We're seeing hunger and food insecurity. And then at the global level, I was looking at the statistics in preparation for our talk today. I found that globally, about 4% of climate change research funding was on Africa. Mm. Stay with me. And then African scientists receives very little of this 4%, of which mm. about 78% of the research funding on Africa goes to institutions in the U.S. and Europe, Right. So in the spirit of this decolonization and in the spirit of the knowledge that nobody knows the solution to a problem more than the people that experiences it, how can we then decolonize the solutions that are almost always going to be imposed upon us? So you see that colonialism have ended, but somehow either through research, either through solutions to address certain issues on the continent, we see this coloniality continuing. So in the spirit of this, statistics that I've now read to you, how can we decolonize the process of learning and understanding how to mitigate some of the threats that we experience without, I guess, African researchers receiving the right funding? And then this brings me to the question, should or do you think that decolonizing um, research in general or building this decolonial future requires investment by African government? Does it require some financial investment or whatever investment in some other form? Because how can you do it if you're not putting your money where your mouth is? Sure, that's um, the, <laughs> that's a question that may be a little bit above my head if I'm being honest <laughs> in terms of you know like the intricacies of how that research might be funded. So, Okay, I think that there's a couple of uh, layers to to what you mentioned there, right? Like the one being yeah. obviously this disparity in the geopolitics of knowledge distribution and research, and how you know where that money gets transferred, and and what the we know those disparities, right? It's it's not yeah. like a familiar idea, and how that of course leads to um, extractive research that you mentioned earlier in yeah. your in your in your. In, in the, I think in one of the responses, how you talked about the extractive research that comes about this whole process yeah. rather than this, I guess, knowledge co-production. 
Yeah. Um, and again, I think that speaks to some of the constraints and, and limitations of operating in that in this like really uh, disparate higher educational space, um, especially when you talk about like the global north south divides and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is kind of where the the idea of like I think it really has to go back to like our intentions. Right. And again, this is kind of where my my faith kind of features because intentionality is a big part of like Islam and and you know, we're told that our actions are by their intentions. And we really have to go go to the question of like what is the intention of undertaking research? Right? Like why do we go about like what is the purpose of is it to attain the the kind of accolades and titles and the the kind of the trappings of you know being well-regarded researchers within this kind of hierarchical university space or is our research really intended to deepen in our knowledge in ways that allow us to attend to the issues that that we feel deeply passionate about and and um will hopefully enable us to improve the lives and the conditions of the people with whom um you know who have in many ways given us the spaces that we've needed in order to be where we are today right like we wouldn't be where we are without the communities that have invested their energy their love their care their joy their their um yeah their struggles in order to open up these doors for us right and so i i don't feel uh i think ethically there's like we talk about research ethics but i think that we then have to go through like an ethical question right about like what are the ethics of you know, seeking out that funding in order to get to that point, in order to attain those like high academic aspirations, um, yeah. while leaving behind the very people whom we are supposed to be, um, at the very least, accountable to, right? And so the the yeah, like I said, I'm not too familiar with the the more specific technicalities around like research funding and whatnot. Uh-huh. But I do think that that should, at the very least, give us pause, right? To say that, like, I need to go back to my intentions. I really need to be clear on what my intentions are for engaging this research. And if my intention, for example, in this project is to give, like, to try my very best to understand, um, again, how to go about planting those seeds, what those seeds are exactly, yeah. Um, then I'm going to do that to the best of my ability, right? And and I'm going to work within what is within my control. Uh, I think it's it's easy to get again like kind of overwhelmed by you know these these big systems and structures that seem kind of out of reach and out of touch. But it, then it goes back to like what what is within my control, and what can I do within my sphere of influence. Okay. And thank you so much for the response. I mean, you have answered it quite um, aptly and I have learned from your response. But then that brings me to the next question in that as you were responding, I'm thinking, okay, um, this doesn't seem to be an exercise in fertility in terms of thinking about planting the seeds and also looking towards this decolonial future that we all aspire to. And then my next question then is, are there evidence of things changing? Because I'm assuming that these seeds, regardless of how small or how big it might be, mm. is already being planted by different people, including people like yourself. Are there mm. evidence of things changing 
or must we put this as just you know one of those exercises in, in futility, <laughs> a future that would never happen, or are there evidence of things changing? So I think this is an interesting question because again we are often so tied to the question of outcomes. Right. Yeah. And we are so invested in, well, what is the tangible change that we can see? Uh-huh. Um, and if I'm being completely honest, right, like, like you said, very, very aptly, um, we are the beneficiaries of those who planted the seeds before us. Uh-huh. Right. Like we, I mean, it said that decolonization started from the moment the colonizers arrived. <laughs> it's not a recent yeah. thing. It's like it's been happening for over like 400 years, right? Yeah. Um, and so the fact that we're even able to have this conversation, uh, you know, the fact that I'm speaking from South Africa, which is a context that I'm, as I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, it has, it definitely has its problems, but, huh. you know, not, not too long ago was like, you know, living under, you know, a very, repressive and 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 deeply deeply unjust um you know social political order which it still is in some ways but i think that like you know is one that is um is particularly complex when we're talking about futures right because on some level things are changing in ways that we may not be like the the um the Sardar talks about this idea of post normal times uh and the fact that we are living in post normal times where it's not just that uh you know as bob Dylan says you know the times they are changing mm-hmm. um, but it's 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 the fact that the rate of change is something that in itself is a phenomenon um and at the same time we witness these you know what Otto Sharma describes as moments of disruption we witness, you know, events, you know, on the other side of the world that have like a ripple effect. So the question of change is not like a linear thing that we can easily point to uh, yeah. and say, well, here's the moment of change or here's the, th- the point at which things are changing. Um, because, you know, our tomorrows are deeply uncertain and there's a degree of, um, yeah, we don't know how this change is going to unfold. And so rather than being invested in the outcomes of change, um i prefer to 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 appreciate the process okay right it's to say that like i may not be able to control the outcome but again this is where kind of in in terms of drawing on my faith right like this is one of those situations where i say that like we do the work but the outcome is ultimately up to our creator yeah right like whatever whether even whether or not the seeds even even grow and and i think Anybody who has done a bit of gardening knows that, you know, you can plant the seed, but it may not even grow. Um, but the point yeah. is you have to put in that work, right? Yeah. And, and that's what I'm going to be accountable for, right? Like whether or not I did put in the work that was needed in the time that I had with the resources and relationships that I had and the knowledge that I had the opportunity to gain. Um, so I think if that's my focus, uh, if that's my intention, if I know that, Again, from a faith perspective, like this, this life that I'm living is not the end, right? Like this is maybe yeah. the, the journey way station. The point is, how do you, how do I make the most of this journey? Uh-huh. Um, and in that time, you know, plant whatever seeds I can and then pray that, you know, the outcome, I leave that to my creator. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It does make sense. Um, I guess the common saying is you do your best and leave the rest to God. And, and that's, yeah. That's actually thinking about it and the way you have 
um, reflected on how decolonizing have actually started from the moment the colonialists arrived. I have never thought about it like that. So that's actually um, quite impressive and made me reflect on on some of the things that I might have, you know, some of the ways that I might have been looking at coloniality and decolonizing and perhaps maybe I need to take a step back and, and rethink what the expectations are or my personal expectations around this whole process or my supposed contribution to decolonizing or having a decolonial futures. Um, I will ask my last question or the final question, which is what can we as listeners or allies, if I can put it that way, do to contribute to planting this seed? What can we do? I think that um, there's there's something that seems on the surface very simple, um, but it actually requires uh, it requires us to really take a step back, and that is to start listening deeply, not just to one another but to ourselves. Um, and I know it seems a bit disconnected. <laughs> like, what does listening have to do with? Um, with futures and, and with decolonizing and whatnot. But I think that there's there's a really interesting um, author by the name of Otto Sharma who talks about how energy follows attention and the quality of our energy depends on the quality of our attention. <laughs> so if we, ref- I think a big part of, you know, why things seem to be stuck is because on, on many levels, like we just, we don't know how to pay attention. Uh-huh. To to not just what's going on in our surroundings, but to again like the real embodied ways in which we experience coloniality. Um, you know, so it's, it's about paying attention to ourselves, to the the issues, the emotions, the feelings that are being generated as we move through the as we move through the world. And witness the things that we we see. Um, it's it's in our ability to pay attention to those who have experienced and, and been subjected to some of the worst forms of violence and and uh, and brutality, you know, that settler colonialism could inflict. Uh, it's a question around who are we paying attention to? Uh, where is our attention being directed? Um, how can we consciously choose, you know, the places in which we, we are choosing to direct our attention? Um, you know, the questions around how do we deepen in our attention, right? So, so that we don't just pay attention to that, which we already know, or that which could, that which could potentially disconfigure our ways of knowing, but on an even deeper level to listen at the level of empathy. Right, to be able to empathize with people on a deeper level so that we understand not just what people are saying, but how they're saying it as well. Uh-huh. Uh, and to go even deeper in that, it's, it's to reflect on how through our listening, may we begin to witness shifts within ourselves towards the sort of futures that, you know, we want to embody within our own lives, right? So, I mean, we talk about futures, it can be the, this like really big grand thing. But I think that on some level, like if we can talk about how coloniality has impacted all of us on a deeply personal level, at the same time, like what might decolonial futures mean for each and every one of us, right? So what is the highest future aspiration that I can potentially 
aspire towards uh, for myself, for my family, for those within, again, I go back to this phrase, within my sphere of influence. Uh-huh. Um, and what can I then start, what sort of conversations can I start having, right, in order to generate those seeds and, again, go through that co-creative, co-planting process. Um, and, and also to support those who are doing that work, right? I think that that's something that we, we often uh, neglect is to say that there are people in our communities, in our society, who are fighting for housing rights, who are fighting the issues around land uh, and land justice. People like um, the organization in South Africa called Abasadi Basem Jondodo, uh-huh. which is the Shack Dwellers Movement. Uh, and again, it's not just about like supporting these organizations with our, you know, financial, like financially, but really trying to see the system as they see it, uh-huh. right? Trying to see the system that we inhabit from a perspective other than our own, uh, in order to really understand and appreciate, um, how kind of disconnected these perspectives can be. Uh, and so I think on some level, it requires a willingness on our part to, um, to on some level, like to open ourselves to new perspectives, to open ourselves to more empathetic ways of being, to open ourselves to the possibilities that emerge when we listen deeply to one another. Um, and I don't think those things can be, uh, I, I don't think they should be uh, overlooked uh, and discounted. I think that we tend to think about things in very, very grand, big terms. Yeah. But it can be as simple as like learning how to pay deep attention to somebody. Okay. Well, um, that's a very great note to end. And yeah, I, I think your recommendations or what we should do is aptly captured. And I can say, listen, pay attention and support those that are already doing the work. And I want to use this opportunity to thank you again for speaking to us and to our listeners. I hope you have um, enjoyed listening. And thank you so much again, Asi, for, for being here and for speaking to us about um, imagining the worlds that could be planting the seeds of the colonial futures. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful.